coming to you from fabulous Las Vegas. The right side is the winning side. The late move is the correct move. Sports betting capital of the world. We all know when a sharp like me weighs in, the lines move. It's a party for your ears. <laughs> This is The Buffet with Chad and Scooch. I want to buy that guy a buffet. Hello, welcome to a very, very special buffet podcast with Chad and Scooch because sitting closer to me than I even usually sit to my own wife right now, <laughs> you can hear the laugh in our Action Network HQ at Action Network HQ on Twitter, in our new headquarters, in our new studio, sitting next to me on a visit to New York, Mr. Bob Scoochie from the Boyd Gaming Books and the Orleans in the state of Nevada. What's going on, brother? Hey, Chad. Nice digs here. I like it. It's fun, right? Yeah. yeah. Boom City. I mean, I, I can see why you're so excited. We, uh, it's a, listen, we have a massive sh the, the show today is killer. because It really is. Because uh, later on in the show, uh, Jason Sobel and Paula Duca come on together. And in addition to generally ripping me, although Sobel wasn't listening to that part, um, Sobel tells a great story about when Phil Mickelson took him for some money at a party uh, uh, five years ago this weekend um, at the Wells Fargo tournament that uh, opens on Thursday that Jason Sobel is covering for Action Network. That story is on actionnetwork.com. LaDuca posted a story yesterday on actionnetwork.com about the time he was in the Marlins dugout when he found out he won $80,000 on Giacomo in the Kentucky Derby and like all the stuff that was happening around him when it was going on. Plus he breaks down the Derby Honest to God, you have to listen to these stories. They are hilariously funny um, and like so full of color and flavor about what life is like literally inside a dugout or at a tournament in the off hours that you never get to see. Uh, download the podcast from the iTunes page, from iTunes, uh, the buffet page. Unsubscribe, resubscribe, rate the podcast, review the podcast. Put your questions on the page. We will review those, bring them onto the podcast. That is where we're doing our interaction with our fans right now um, because that's how you get higher rated in iTunes. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? So unsubscribe, resubscribe, go rate, go review, put in your questions, do it all. Later on, LaDuca and Sobel both tell great gambling stories about the Kentucky Derby and Phil Mickelson, hilariously funny. First up, we got Scooch in New York. Yeah, man, this is great. I am so glad you're here. This is such a great surprise. We got a lot to talk about, too. Yeah. Like, we well, could talk about the fact, on. well, number one, we could talk about you're in New York, yeah. and um, which you're not allowed to talk about. Yeah. So I'm not even going to press you on it. Can I say how you got here? Yeah, sure. Tell us how you got here. Like, tell us, tell us your travel accommodations on the way out here. Okay. Well, we had you know, the, the, the private car that takes us to the hangar and the. Uh, well, explain and, and, to people, like, oh. who you were coming with and, like, If you're allowed to say that, yeah. and then like I don't, people don't know that you were taking a private car to a hangar to get on something. So okay. like you got to set that up. <laughs> well, we had a, we had a business trip here uh, in New York and some other some other regions, just kind of routine stuff. And uh, I'm traveling with some of the senior executives with with Boyd. So um, you know we have a we have a private hangar. Boyd does at the uh, near McCarran Airport in Las Vegas. So we got the car early in the morning on uh, Monday to go to the hangar and the hangar itself is pretty nice. So, you know, you hang out there and you, I, I love, I don't know, you've probably traveled uh, on a private plane. Many, many times. 
I, I love how, you know, you get there about 15 minutes before you take off. That's the best. So, you know, you, you just take your stuff on the plane. You're like, okay, as soon as you're ready to sit, it's wheels up and you're ready to, ready to go. So, um, it was uh, it was a nice jet, you know, a Falcon 2000. Is it like buttery leather seats? Yeah. And like, yeah. what is the food like? So, so the uh, uh, the food is kind of you know we have our chefs at the uh, uh, at the Orleans. They prepare special meals ahead like of time. Battered flacco. Exactly. Well, I didn't have the battered flacco. There was you know some steak and lobster there, but I I didn't have that. I was trying to I was trying to go a little healthy and light. I had, <laughs> I had fruit and then basically a you know a turkey wrap you know with with avocado. I was going I was going. Are healthy. you kidding me? Like I'm going. You were in now. the hangar and like they're making steak and lobster, and that's when you decide. Eh, I'm going to go with the fruit cup and maybe a uh, yeah, you know some deli yeah. turkey. You know I like to travel light. You know I'll, I'll I'll indulge once I'm in the city and just a little bit more Jesus relaxed. You know, right? You know you don't know it's gonna might be a bumpy flight. You have no idea. Your your yeah. belly's a little sensitive. <laughs> it can get you know the, that's the one thing about you know the smaller planes. I mean this only seats eight people uh, on the on the jet. So you it, you guys it, don't know this, but right now I'm <laughs> pretending to play a violin for Scooch because it's so sad that uh, his belly can get sensitive on. <laughs> A bumpy flight from Las Vegas to New York when he's flying on a Falcon Two. I mean, you go over the Rockies, you know, it gets and it gets a little rocky over the Rockies. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, you gotta gotta make sure you're not you didn't eat too much. Yeah. But once you get up to you know about forty one thousand feet, it's just like clear sailing. So that that was nice. Um, <laughs> of course, I got in. We got in, and it was raining. So you know, I'm not used to not used to that. You know. Well, normally you live in a bubble of Italian villas and private jets and private cars. Exactly. So it, the rain doesn't even touch you. <laughs> so we had the car. We actually uh, uh, flew into one of the airports and. Jersey and Teterboro. Teterboro. Yeah. Yeah. That's where they do all the private stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and then took the car in, into the city. And uh, like I said, boy, I, I, I travel like this, you know, he's, so, he's so wearing, wearing like a nice shirt, you know? Yeah. Nothing heavy. And it was like 49 degrees and windy and rainy. As soon as I got out of the, it just hit me like right. Welcome back. to the East coast. Buddy. Man. Now today, today is nice. Beautiful. Today's, yeah. It's like going to be 80 degrees outside. Beautiful. Hey, um, speaking of beautiful last night, the Cavs came back and they beat the Raptors in overtime. Yeah. There were like three horrible bad beats in baseball. I don't know if you saw that or not. Like there was an under five in the Nationals game mm-hmm. uh, where like the total in the first five innings was under five. And it was two nothing in the bottom of the fifth. And I think there were two outs. There was like an error, a walk to the pitcher. And then Bryce Harper came up and bombed like a three run homer. And so that went over. Um, do you keep like when you're on the road? Yeah. Are you keeping track of bad beats like that? Does it do you hear about that? Well, what I'm doing, especially if I'm with the senior executives, and you know, I have to just keep abreast of like who we need and and how big the decisions are. Uh, you know, we're in and out of meetings a lot, so it's real difficult. I couldn't watch the games. We we're actually in some meetings last night as well, but uh, uh, I was trying to keep as best as I could tabs on the game, watching the scores. Uh, reading about it, but uh, you know when you're on the road like this, it's difficult to to watch the games like I do at home and and actually keep track of the in progress betting lines and the halftime lines as as normal as as I would normally. But uh, we didn't have a good day yesterday, and I could I can tell you that. But we actually needed the Cavs because uh, we had a lot more tickets on on Toronto. We had a lot more bets on Toronto. 
Uh, I mean, that's typical. We always need an underdog, but when you get to this stage in the, in the playoffs, it, it's not as lopsided as it is in some of the earlier rounds. So, um, you know, and in, in baseball, we need all the big underdogs almost every day. So, uh, and a lot of unders. There are so many games right now that are happening like over the next 24 hours that I have questions about. So, and they all feel like they are bookmakers trying to take advantage of the public. So, you know, Leduc and I were talking earlier this morning, and Leduc is on later in the show, as I've said. And by the way, if you followed Action Network HQ on Twitter or you went to actionnetwork.com, Scooch, you would be able to keep track of everything that's happening because we were all over like all the bad beats and the comeback by the, by the Cavs and all that kind of stuff. And the comeback by the Pelicans late in the game right. to cover, we were on top of that. So if you ever need <laughs> that's a good to source, know what's huh? going on, you I'm can just, go to action network. Um, yeah. So like, this is way literally inside baseball. Dallas Keuchel is plus one Oh two against Louis Severino. Who's minus minus one twelve. The Yankees are vis- visiting the Astros. I look at that and I say the bookmakers are begging the public to take the Yankees mm-hmm. because they believe the right side is the Astros. Right. And so tell me you're thinking like on a line of that sort of nuanced, what is your strategy there? Well, <clears throat> the betting public has actually shifted in those type of games. You know, typically we need the underdogs in any game where there's a, a favorite with a high profile favorite like the Yankees and, and, and the Astros. When they're playing each other, the public seems to always find a little bit more value in the underdog. When they have two good teams playing each other, and we've seen it in the national championship, seen it in the Super Bowl, they'll take there, there's a tendency in recent years in big games and big matchups to go ahead and take the underdog uh, because they just feel like if, they're, if they got to this point, it, anyone could win the game. So when we have a, a game during the regular season, like with two of the most popular betted teams, uh, we know that we're going to get a lot of action from, from the squares on the, on the underdog. But we try to keep the line as real as we can without shading it too much. So we're, yeah, we're, we are inviting a little bit of money on that, but we, we know it's going to come. So we're not, we're not fighting it. Similar question. I feel like this turned into a very serious interview. Yeah, I know. I need my coffee. But, you know, I watched the Cavs-Raptors game last night, and you see that the Raptors totally fall apart. And all of a sudden, there's the narrative that comes up in basketball, right? The Raptors can't beat the Cavs. Kyle Lowry can't perform in the playoffs. Um, They start to crumble. And all I'm thinking about is, how is this line going to zigzag, right? Like the game last night, uh, the game closed at – what was it? Raptors six and a half, I think. Seven. I think Seven. Yeah. And then tonight we've got, uh, tomorrow night it'll be Raptors minus six is what it opened at. Right. If the Raptors win that game, what do you open the game at? If the Raptors win game two. Game uh, one. If the Raptors win oh, game if, one, if the Raptors what do you won, open game two at? Oh, if the Raptors won last night, we opened uh, this game at seven and a half. So we go, we go up. So it's a point and a half difference in value. If the Raptors win versus having lost and you yeah. opened at six. Right. Right. If they win and cover, I mean, obviously, yeah, yeah. Cover. you know, uh, if they just win the game by one, uh, like if that game went overtime and they just barely squeaked it out, we probably would have opened the same line as, as we did in, in, in game one. But if they win and covered, probably would open a little higher. 
And we, you know, the zigzag, you know, we talk about we, it all yeah. the time. But uh, Explain the zigzag. People might not know what it is. Yeah, so when you get to the playoffs, whoever wins and or, or covers in one game, the tendency is for the betters to go ahead and bet the opposite in the next game. And particularly when you get, I mean, especially if they win two in a row, and then you figure that, okay, they have to come back on, on the other side. So it, it hasn't really been panning out. I mean, if you follow the, the first couple, uh, first round of the playoffs, and uh, hasn't really panned out, especially with the, the better teams like the Warriors. Uh, but uh, it, it's been the betting pattern, and it kind of makes sense. You don't want to go down 0-2 in a series and certainly don't want to go down 0-3 in a series. So you, you figure, especially if, they're, if the team is getting points and they're already down a game, uh, it makes sense to bet that team. I am so going to go all in on the Raptors in game two. I feel like they are a better team than they have been in the past. Yeah. I feel like... They are not going to have the kind of streak where they go cold again like they did in the fourth quarter. Right. And I think there's going to be so much hype on what the Cavs did and the Raptors cratering that, like, you're never going to get better value on the Raptors than you are as six-point favorites at home in game two. Yeah, probably. I, I mean, it. They, they really can't, like I said, they really can't afford to go down two games in this series and uh, and then just uh, give all the advantage to to Cleveland going back to, going back to Cleveland. So, uh uh, it's a real important game, and uh, do you want to take my action right now? If I, you know, like, since I don't have a my sports book with me, I mean, I can't, you know, bet across state lines and everything. So I'll just, I'll just book it. You just book yeah, it for I'll me. Book it. You'll give me. You give I'll me give six. Twenty bucks. I don't know. <laughs> listen, listen. Oh wait, no, you're on Madison Avenue listen. now. Hey, wait a minute now. <laughs> you you got the the rubber band around the bankroll. As they say, you don't you don't get to fly in private jets by making bad bets. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Huh? I, I and just, you and you fly on them all the time now, so it's how I live. <laughs> you know, if you're gonna be a high roller, you got to live yeah. like a high roller. Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah. Um, you are also a horse player, yeah. so let's talk a little bit about the Derby. Um, let's see. There's Mendelssohn. Yeah. Who else? There's Magnum. Justify. Justify. The other, the other co-favorite. Um, Audible. Um, I mean, a, lo- a lot of Pletcher, Bafford, and D. Wayne Lucas. I mean, it's the same it's players. The same, guys. same guys. I mean, you got to look for some long shots. And, you know, when you're betting the Derby, I, I mean, some of my some of my biggest uh, uh, Derby wins were just basically throwing darts, you know, especially with the big field and anything can happen. And if you got an outside post, I, I mean, it's – it, it, it's not an easy as it's not a, an easy race to handicap, especially if you're handicapping horse racing throughout the year. This is not your typical uh, uh, race, you know, to have that large of a field and that much energy, and uh, so you know a lot of variables in there. But that's what makes it fun. What is the most you've ever won on the Kentucky Derby? Um, not a whole lot. Probably about seven hundred dollars. It wasn't a lot. Seriously? I bet, yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't go in and. Uh, well, number one, I always lose on the derby, so yeah. you know, I'll bet. I'll bet long shots and throw them in. Uh, throw them in trifectas and everything. But I'm. I'm not firing in on on the derby. I leave that for my dad. He he loves that. So about uh, I don't know, ten or twelve years ago, I was in Vegas for a buddy's bachelor party, and this guy had incredibly wealthy friends. And so it was like, there were 10 guys, crazy, crazy rich. And then me and another buddy who like 
and all these guys came from like really wealthy families, like families whose companies had gone public. Um, uh, a company, uh, one guy, his dad owned multiple professional sports teams. And, um, you know, me and this other guy are just pikers. Like, we don't know anything. And like, we're barely getting by living in New Jersey. And these guys are at like the, you know, $100 blackjack table. And at dinner, dinner's like a $3,000 tab. And they're like, let's just pick out of a hat to see, like, let's play credit card roulette and the loser has to pay the whole thing. And my buddy and I are like, what the, you know? And so um, the next morning, like everyone goes out all night and the next morning is the Derby and I have breakfast with Alan Boston. I get up early, I go to breakfast with Alan Boston and he's a big horse guy Mm -hmm. and he gives me a couple tips on who he likes in the Derby. So I go back and I'm talking to these guys and they had read the odds, you know, your favorite book. And um, so they knew Alan Boston. And so they're asking me what he said. And I tell everybody what Alan Boston said about the Derby. And a couple of these guys like make bets on what he said, including the guy whose family owned the professional team. And uh, he made some sizable bets on some of the tips. And one of the bets cashed and he won $10,000 on the Derby. Do you think he like said thank you? Do you think he like was unbelievably gracious for the rest of the weekend? Like nothing. It's like it's like no one else had helped him make the decision at all. Right. I'm so disappointed in that to this day, as you can see. Sure. What do you think that guy should have done? Give me a Vegas code response for what he did. Oh man. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'm just. I'm looking back at some of my own derby, <laughs> my own derby stories, and and none of them are very good. I mean, in in all the years in in the sports book, I mean, I, I I'll go back to my early my earliest days in the uh, the sports book. I was a young supervisor. I wasn't even at the Stardust yet. I was at the Fremont, and there was a there was a horse called Arazi that had looked like a monster horse in the juveniles in the Breeders' Cup. So going into, as a three-year-old, he was just the, the clear favorite to win the Derby, clear favorite. And at the time, I bet about as much as I could afford, $200 on a, on a horse. Uh, and uh, and I remember being at the counter, Bet I had already bet early in the day. And when the race goes off, picture a sports book that most everyone's looking at the uh, the race. And I've got a guy at the counter begging me for a comp for a hot dog as the race is going on. <laughs> and, and I'm just, you know, I'm trying to watch this race because I've got money on it and a lot of money for me at the time. And, and this guy is just giving me the hardest time about a comp. I'm like, I, you know, the race is on. It's the Kentucky Derby. And, and, and th- I missed the entire race because I'm talking to this guy and my horse just finished. I think he's still running now, but he's <laughs> So these are kind of like my my memories of derbies. I've never I've never had a good derby. The only one that I really won a lot of money on was uh, was Thunder Gulch, and the only reason I bet on him was because it was just pouring rain, and I was the night before, and I I was trying to navigate through flooded areas uh, uh, around Vegas, and when I saw the the name Thunder Gulch, I just took a shot with him, and he paid fifty one dollars. So that's my best one. It's not it's not entertaining, but that's my best. That's a great story, Scooch. But you didn't answer the question, which is, this guy who's loaded won ten grand on a tip that I gave him, yeah. and didn't say thank you and didn't t- and didn't give you a cut. I don't even so, think I needed a cut. Like, was I entitled to a cut? Yeah. 
I was. The Vegas Vegas code, I mean, especially, somebody gives you a horse, especially if it's a tip, you got to give them something. I mean, that 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 is that's an old code that's still in existence today. As a matter of fact, I have to make sure some of the players in the race book don't hustle other customers because that's a thing. You know, like guys are in the race book going up to some of the other customers saying, hey, I got a hot horse for you. And it may not really be a hot horse, but they're just hoping that it wins. And then they, they give them they give them a piece. So that's something I have to watch for in the race book. Uh, but but absolutely, to answer your question, uh, you, you deserve a piece of that. I mean, that guy, how much do you think I should have gotten? A 10%. I should have gotten $1,000. Oh, yeah. Easy. I mean, would he have won it if he didn't give him the tip? He would have won nothing. That's what I'm saying. He would have been losing the whole weekend. He would have been laying out chips, losing, chasing bad bets. He would have known nothing. Yeah. Yeah. To this day, my and you met him, actually. You know, the, the my old uh, college roommate who, you know. Very, I, oh, very, yeah. Very, Great very, guy. Very wealthy guy. And uh, I actually met with him last week. And he still talks about a story 35 years ago. When we came to Vegas from college, we just took a weekend, and my dad gave him this hot tip. The, the, the trainer from Texas, he was doing things with the bullet workouts, and he, he knew stuff that other people didn't know, and he said, this horse is going to be 20 to 1. Go ahead and bet 50 bucks on him, 100 bucks." And, and he, my friend still talks about this. With all the money he's got from other areas of life, he thought that that was the greatest thing ever. And, and he, how much did he tip you? Ten percent. So he would have to like probably a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars. Yeah, I got so rich. You got nothing. You got robbed. You know what I got what that happened? day? What? I got a wicked sunburn. That's what I ended up getting. <laughs> like a really bad sunburn. Like so bad, I remember I could barely bend my legs on the flight home. It was a miserable wow flight home. Wow, that's horrible. And it's Are horrible. Still friends with the guy? Fuck no. <laughs> I'm friends with the guy, yeah. like the bachelor. Right. But I'm not like the yeah. other guy. I didn't like the weekend we were there. Yeah. I thought he was kind of like douchey. Yeah. And that only confirmed it for me. And so, um, no, I'm not friends with the guy. Aren't you worried he's like listening to this right now? Well, like I remember that guy. Really? He thought I was douchey. I don't think I've spoken to him in 12 years. <laughs> okay. So I don't think we're going to reconnect. <laughs> and the chances that he's the one listening to this podcast are yeah, very, yeah. very small. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Also, there's not enough, like, I happen to know a lot of guys who own teams, and yeah. so there's not enough identifying, because I fly private. Oh, So there's not enough no identifying right. characteristics yeah. for yeah. me to really, yeah. for him to figure out who he is. All right. Give me who you think is going to win the Derby this weekend. Because I drink red wine, I'm going to go with Vino Rosa, which is red wine. What's Vino Rosa going off at right now? I think 12 to 1, 15 to 1. All right. Why not? Listen, I'm going to go with Vino Rosa, too. And wow, uh, what, really? uh, what do I know? <laughs> I hate going with the, so, you know, I've gone with so many favorites over the years. And like I said, I don't have a good track record. And one of the only ones I won was a, a 25 to one shot. So why not? I'm going with Vino Rosa. Uh, coming up next in the podcast, Jason Sobel and Paul Duca with honestly the two best gambling stories about athletes and being inside the culture of sports that I have ever heard. Uh, also, Laduca, who is a horse racing expert, gives you his take on the Derby, but mostly he's just telling a crazy freaking story. Uh, go rate and review the podcast on the iTunes page, the buffet. Find us at Action Network HQ. Go to actionnetwork.com. He is Bob Scucci. Uh, thanks for being in New York for this, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Listen up to Laduca and Sobel. As promised, we have two ridiculously fun gambling stories that have been posted on Action Network dot com in the past 24 hours 
um, that have been picked up far and wide and getting a lot of attention. And so uh, I got both of the guys who wrote those stories on the show. I got Paul LaDuca, uh, fan favorite, Action Network extraordinaire contributor, who if people only know him as sort of MLB all-star veteran catcher, um, beloved New York Met and Dodger and Marlin. They don't know that he has spent the past 10 years being a horse racing analyst for both TVG and Fox and New York Racing Association. And the guy, I think, knows more about horse racing than he does about uh, baseball. And he wrote a ridiculously fun story about when he won 80 grand on the Kentucky Derby. And uh, it was all happening while he was in the middle of a game. Paul's on the call. And then uh, also Jason Sobel, who wrote a story this morning about a night five years ago today at the beginning of the Wells Fargo tournament that begins this weekend um, in which he was out with Phil Mickelson with a bunch of other people at a party and everybody got taken by Phil Mickelson in what had to be a massive win for Mickelson and was a series of small uh, lacking in dignity losses for everybody else, including, including Jason Sobel, who's on the call. Fellas, what's going on? Jason, good to hear from you. Paul, good to hear from you. Your stories are great. They're blowing things up. Polly, a lot going on right now between the Derby and that story. Yeah, it was an interesting story to write. And when I, when I was thinking about it, I knew I wanted to write the story. I mean, I've told like some of my closest friends it. Um, and one of my closest friends, Dave, when, when you read the article, it's through his eyes because um, I knew when I called him, I called him about a week ago and I was like, bro, I know you can tell the story just as good as me because we were in this together. I want your side of the story of you holding my tickets uh, because I couldn't make it because the game was scheduled at a certain time, right at the Derby time, the Marlins decided to schedule a 525 game. Uh, and I wanted to, them, to the readers to feel, okay, this is where we're he My buddy who I sent the bets with and then, the story of me behind the scenes when I'm playing the game, basically uh, in the middle of the game as the Kentucky Derby's going down the backstretch. So, yeah, a lot going on. This first Saturday in May has always been a, a big thing in in our household. I'm um, growing up. We're going to get to all of it, and we, you know, you talked about it on the podcast last week when you you had this phenomenal story in the podcast last week about as a 12 year old. Uh, making a bet for your dad that cashed at uh, 15 to one. It was a thousand dollar bet. You won 15 grand and then were arrested as soon as you made the bet because you weren't supposed to be making it. And the ticket taker got fired and your dad tipped her five G's um, because he felt bad. She got fired for taking your bet. Jason, you're going to come in. Yeah. Uh, Paul's going to tell his story in a minute, but come in and tell the Mickelson story since uh, you're on site right now at the tournament. Tell me about the story that you wrote today on actionnetwork.com. Yeah, you want me to give you the whole story now? I, I can't wait to hear Paul's story. I actually haven't read his story yet, so I, I want to hear him tell his story too. So I want you to, I want you to tell your story and a reminder to everybody that uh, they should go rate the podcast on the iTunes page for the buffet, uh, and they should also send in questions that they have. We are going to start moving all of our questions and answers to iTunes reviews. So if you have questions for Jason, for me, for Laduca, for anybody else in the Action Network universe, then um, you need to go to the Action Network, to the uh, Buffet page in iTunes and send in, your, uh, send in your reviews So and your questions to the reviews. Sorry, I'm getting distracted because in a little bit, Bob Scucci, 
uh, is going to come in and we're going to record our podcast face-to-face and he's texting me right now. So um, it distracted me. Jason, tell your story about Phil Mickelson and how he took you for your money. Yeah. So this is five years ago. It's the day I'm at the Quail Hollow Club for the Wells Fargo Championship and uh, being the lazy media member I am, uh, I waited until Phil was out on the 16th tee, which is right behind the media center. And myself and a couple of colleagues walked out there to say hi to Phil, catch up with him, hadn't seen him in a few weeks. And we walk out there, and if you ever want to talk to a professional golfer and you're covering an event, go to the back nine of a Wednesday Pro-Am because they will be more than happy to see even a member of the media. So in any case, we start walking down the fairway. At one point, Phil says, so you guys coming Saturday night? We say, what are you talking about? He said, oh, I rented out this restaurant, uh, food, drinks, all on me, and then uh, we're going to uh, uh, watch Mayweather fight that night. Mayweather was fighting a guy named uh, the Ghost Guerrero, who I'd never heard of until I actually went back and did a little research on what exactly happened that night. So in any case, we, we get there Saturday. Phil is tied for the lead. I've written a column on Phil Mickelson, ironically, uh, that evening. And as soon as I finish my column, I go to a party being held and hosted by Phil Mickelson. And we go in there, 50, 60 people, uh, you know, a private function and just, uh, just a, a nice little gathering, everyone having a couple of cocktails, everyone having a little pizza from the place. I mean, you know, nothing special other than you would recognize about half the people in the place, PGA Tour players and caddies. And uh, so before the undercard is about to start for the Mayweather fight, Phil stands up in front of the room and says, look, guys, uh, the staff here is terrific. Anything you need, they'll take care of you. And just relax, enjoy yourselves, have fun. And, oh, by the way, wagering is encouraged. And so the first fight of the undercard comes up, and there might have been a couple of little bets here and there just uh, just for guys to get a little action. But for the most part, no one's really paying too much attention. And then the second bout is about to come on, and Phil stands up in front of the room again and says, well, guys, I know I, I said I wouldn't make another announcement, but I've got this second fight. Uh, got this guy, El Explosivo is his nickname, Alexander Munoz. He has... Uh, 30 career knockouts. This guy has been going at it forever. This guy's held titles. Um, very good fighter. And he's going against this, this young kid who's moving up in a weight class. He's fighting for the super bantamweight title. He's never uh, fought in this class before. And you know what? He's an underdog, but I'm feeling this kid, so I'll take any bets you've got and even money. If anyone wants to bet me, I'll, I'll take the kid. I'll take the underdog. Now, here's the point where all of us knowing Phil Mickelson should have done a little due diligence. What we would have found is that this kid was 5-0 and the year before and one of the more promising boxers in the entire world. Instead, we all just raise our hands and start waving money around saying, sure, Phil, I'll do that. Sounds great. I'll take the favorite at even money. Why not? And so the bout starts, and it was over the minute it started. Uh, Phil's guy just started pummeling our guy uh, through uh, – a nice little combination in the first round. Uh, again, in the second round, he was ahead on all the judges' cards. Finally, a minute into the fifth round, he wins by technical knockout. Phil then walks around the room, plucks the cash out of everybody's hands, and uh, as I wrote in the piece, uh, uh, a dumbfounded champion. He played the role very well where he walked up to people and said, man, I, I'm really sorry about that. Boy, uh, I just got lucky there. I, you know, I, I guess that was just a, a lucky win for me. And Man, I didn't think that was going to happen. <laughs> And just playing the part of perfection took my uh, took my hundred from me, and uh, I was happy to give it to him because I still can tell the story now. And it wasn't until uh, I, I left and I was driving back to my hotel uh, later that night when I realized 
Phil played all of us. Phil invited us to this restaurant, uh, was the generous host, paid for everything, probably made double what he had paid to rent the place out for the night just on those bets alone. And knowing Phil, he probably tipped out all the profit to the waitstaff and wound up even for the night and wins the good guy award just for hosting everybody. So it is a classic Phil Mickelson story. Um, I've been waiting to tell it for years, and this being the five-year anniversary of that week, I figured it was a perfect time to tell that story. You got snookered by Phil Mickelson, completely taken great. the woodshed. Let me ask something, Jace. Did he break yeah. down the fighter before he told you guys? Like, he broke him down? He basically, I mean, he did without giving us all of the information. And, and that's where it was, such, it was such a good move by Phil. I mean, you know, it, it's as if someone had said to you last night, hey, uh, you know, the Warriors, you know, they're kind of old and, you know, they've got one of their biggest stars injured. And uh, if you guys want the Pelicans, you guys can take the Pelicans. You know, they've got maybe the best player in the NBA. It's got dominant inside. No one can guard them. Um, if, if you guys want to take the Pelicans, I, I guess I'll take the Warriors. And, and it's very much as if, he had sort of given you the information without giving you all of the information. And yeah, he, he kind of played down this young kid who was moving up a weight class. And, you know, I, I guess I'll take him, uh, you know, just, just for the hell of it, just so we can have some action going on. And uh, what we all didn't realize, of course, we didn't look up this guy. Uh, I, Leo Santa Cruz, I believe was his name. And uh, he was one of the more promising. I'm not a big boxing guy, but he was one of the more promising uh, boxers out there. And, and apparently uh, the guy showed his stuff that night because I, I remember watching it and like, a minute into the fight, we're all looking at each other like, okay, we just lost. We knew it right away. <laughs> I just love that. I love everything about that story, but there's one thing that I can't figure out. Yeah. How common is it on the Saturday night of a tournament for like, for there to be a party? Probably not very common, but not uncommon either. I think Phil, Phil, for whatever reason, does it in Charlotte uh, just about every year. That's the only one that I've been to personally. Um, I've covered this tournament kind of on and off over the last 12 years or so. Um, so I, I'm not always here. Uh, but he does it a lot. Look, especially as he was uh, in the last pairing because he was tied for the lead going into Sunday, you've got to do something Saturday night to keep you busy. If you go home uh, or back to the hotel and go to sleep, at nine o'clock at night, you're going to wake up at six in the morning with a two o'clock tea time and have no idea what to do with yourself for a while. So uh, I, and, and as I wrote the story, Phil was sipping on a red wine. It's not, I don't want to make it sound like this was some crazy party and Phil's tied to the lead and uh, he, he's hammering down shots or anything like that at the bar. He, he was sipping on a glass of red wine. It was a uh, very sort of casual party. There was nothing uh, out of control other than our gambling losses. I just love the idea. It's sort of the antithesis of, I can tell you right now, the Super Bowl was played at what? Six in the afternoon, six in the evening. And nobody is like, there's no casual get together the night before the game where like all the players are hanging out. So they'll sleep a little later. Like Polly, you played professional baseball at the highest level for a long time. You guys made the playoffs. You went to an NLCS. Like, tell me, on the day of it, like the night before a game, when the game was having a 7.05 start, what were you doing the night before? Um, you know, you, you could do what you wanted to. It depended. You know, I played every day, so it was different catching. Uh, did I go out and have my fun on Long Island? Yeah, I mean, that was the one great thing about playing in New York when I was with the Mets or 
in L.A. is that they recognize you and they comp you in those kind of places. I can remember in 06 when we had the good Mets team. I didn't pay for one meal on Long Island. But we used to try to keep it to once, you know, one time, one time a night or one time a week. Or if we had a Sunday night game on ESPN, we'd maybe go out on Saturday night. Or if we had a Thursday off, we'd go out on Wednesday. We tried to keep it, you know, somewhat to – you know, not too much party. And the thing is, when you play every day, you just can't do it. Now, if you're a pitcher and you're putting pitching once every five days, you could do that kind of stuff. But, I mean, me catching nine innings a game, the perception is, oh, guys go out and party. Guys do a lot of different things to to, to do stuff. That might have been the case of some guys. And, yeah, I am not wasn't an angel. But most of the time, you're not going out and getting slaughtered before you got to play a game the next day. Uh, I, I don't even think it's like it's about – getting slaughtered like just the idea that the idea that there's a late game the next day and you don't want to be up at six o'clock in the morning it's so anathema to how people usually think about what you were doing the night before as an athlete i actually i have no judgment on this like i actually think it's a good idea why not go out the night before relax like get your mind off everything i i I, i'll never forget a story before miguel cabrera came out with his struggles with alcohol, um, and he publicly said it, I played with him with the Marlins, and he showed up one day. Uh, we had a 1 o'clock game. He showed up to the ballpark at 1230, and Jack McKean came up to me and said, what should we do? I got to sit him, and we were in the middle of the playoff run. I'm like, I can't have a guy show up. I'm like, there's 15 games left basically in the season, Jack. You suspend them now, what are you going to do? Who cares? And, you know, he obviously was pissed drunk that night. I don't know. You could smell it a little bit. He had three home runs. <laughs> so, you, you tell me, like, I watched the guy pissed drunk hit three home runs. I also watched a guy pissed drunk hit a walk-off home run in one of the first articles that I, I played. Some guys are better. They play better intoxicated. It takes away the nerves or – or it takes away this and that. You know, he was planning on thinking, I think Miguel thought he was having an off day. So he went out. We had a day game the next day. And Jack, Trader Jack, was putting him in the lineup. And I remember he was like, okay. And he came to the ballpark and four for four with three home runs. Like, this guy's that good. So, you know, I don't judge guys. If they come to the ballpark drunk and they don't hit, it's like the Harvey thing. They say, oh, he pitched well. You know, it's only going to be an issue until he pitches bad or he plays bad and they come and they show up to the ballpark drunk, you know? Listen, I think everyone will tell you that I'm a much better podcast host drunk than sober. And as soon as I start <laughs> sure, doing right? it drunk, I think the numbers, the numbers for this podcast are going to rise. Let me give you a quick story. Uh, Monday and Tuesday are kind of the usual party nights. Even, even like a Sunday night, if guys are flying, a lot of guys fly private and Sunday night after a, a long week, guys will uh, throw back a few drinks on the plane. But Monday and Tuesday night, you can get away with it. You're just kind of easing your way into the week. So true story, last night I go out with a couple of buddies who work for the SEC Network here in Charlotte. So we got together, we went out and uh, had dinner, and I'm coming back to the hotel. I get in the elevator um, at about 11.15, 11.30 last night, and there's a guy holding a drink, stumbling into the elevator. And I'm looking at him, and he kind of smiles at me. He goes, Ooh, rough night. He goes, all I can tell you, don't bet on Ricky and Rory this week. And I look at him and go, oh, yeah, why is that? He goes, oh, I was out with them tonight, and man, <laughs> I'm telling you, they can't recover after this. 
And, and of course, Ricky and Rory are two of the, the betting favorites this week. I like both of them. They've each won here at Quail Hollow. So I, I really like them. And I, I'm sitting there, of course, trying to disseminate this information. Like, do I want to listen to the guy who's stumbling into the elevator at 1130 at night on a Tuesday night and, and base any kind of predictions and bets off of that? Probably not. And yet it's going to be in the back of my mind the entire week. And if Rory and Ricky don't play well, come Sunday afternoon, I'm going to be thinking about that guy in the elevator. Uh, wow. I am 100% fading uh, Ricky and Rory because of that story. That's like yeah. getting a bathroom tip, Milsey. It's like going to the bathroom and getting a tip on a horse if you're at the racetrack. Hey, bet the it's the best. And you're... <laughs> <laughs> Fortunes are made in the bathroom, Laduca. That's how you win. Uh, it's crazy. That's a great story by Jason there. Because you, you, you hear so many different stories. Oh, don't play on this horse. Or don't bet on this guy. This guy was doing this. This guy was doing that. Uh, there's so many different theories. And in some aspects, would you agree, don't you need to handicap somewhat the handicapper? Yeah, that's well, a great point. And, and, I mean, I you know, look at the source. And, I mean, the guy, the guy couldn't have done any better for me if I had walked up to him and said, hi, I'm Jason Sobel of the Action Network. I'm trying to handicap this week's field. What do you think of the favorites? I mean, it's almost like I, I set him up for the question, and he's like, oh, I got something good for you. Here, let me, let, me, let me give it to you. I mean, the guy looked at me, has no idea who I am. I'm not wearing any golf clothes or anything like that, uh, and, and just blurts out, yeah, don't, don't bet on Ricky and Rory this week. Oof. I mean, uh, I, th- I think handicapping the handicapper is actually, there should be like a subset for that because you're right. Like, can you trust this guy or not? Paul. Tell tell the t- tell the story that you wrote about uh, when you won eighty grand on the Derby and and you were you like, how did you make the bet? How did you decide? How much money did you put down originally? Give us the details on that. Like, what was it like when you're in the dugout and your buddy's got this ticket and you're trying to figure out if this is going to cash or not? Well, yeah, the story goes back to it was '05, um, and I became good friends or great friends with Mike Smith, the Hall of Fame jockey, because we lived above each other. Um, he actually went to a superintendent one day and complained because our schedules are the same. It's almost like golfers and, and, and baseball players. You know, golfers got to be up, staying with jockeys at 5 in the morning, and I would be up at, like, you know, midnight coming home from the games. And he was complaining I was making too much noise. We became friends. So fast forward about a year later, gives me this horse called Giacomo in a maiden race. I bet out on the horse that day. I think I had 500 across. I played some exactas. I had made about – Oh, five to 10,000, somewhere in that area. Now, the horse was a deep closer. He had run in the Santa Anita Derby. There was no pace in the Santa Anita Derby at all. So he needs pace to run into, needs horses to run into. So Mike had told me, I really feel he has a big shot. Now, I had bet futures after his maiden win in Vegas. The crazy part is the futures were less than what he paid on track that day. I think I got him at 40 and 45 to 1. Um, Because I knew he was bred to get the Derby distance. Now, the day of the Derby, the Marlins decide to schedule a 525 game. And the Derby's about set to go off at like 608, somewhere in that area. And usually, you know, you play 7 o'clock games on a Saturday, or you play a 1 o'clock game. It it was the weirdest start time. I don't know why they decided to do it. So now I'm I'm, I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to miss the Derby. So it starts to rain. Okay. Now I had uh, 
you could old Joe Robbie Stadium where the Marlins and the Dolphins used to play. You could throw a stone to the old Calder Racecourse, which is now Gulfstream Park West. My good friend Mike Welsh and Dave Wilhauer, we used to go over there, and and our third base coach, which was uh, Cocky Greg Cox, is we used to um, go over there, bet the races at around noon one. Back in those days, you had Tebow. Uh, you'd go play the game. You'd go watch it. Well, it comes to Derby Day, I give all my bets to Coxie. I'm telling him, listen, this is what I want. I want uh, – because uh, I got to be there early for the game. You know, when I was catching those days in 05, I, I, was, I had a bad hamstring, so I had to be there, I think, at noon. I was usually there five hours before the game. So I'm giving him all these bets. I put 500 to win in place on the horse. I had pick fours galore, which is, you know, pick the four races before that, three races before that, into him. Um, I had futures on them. I had, I would say, close to $200 in futures on them that were going to pay me back close to nine to 10 grand, somewhere in that area. Um, I had probably bet close to, I would say, 7,500 completely on the race, maybe a little bit less, about 5,000, if you consider the, the props. So now the rain delay ends. And I'm, the, the derby's like 15 minutes post. I'm like, oh, okay, the rain. I'm, I'm looking outside. I they had a call. Hey, guys, go to the bullpen. Start warming up. Uh, they're going to start the game at 6.05. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. The derby post is 6.08. This is just <laughs> in, insane. So I'm like, got to go down to the bullpen. And I was always the catcher that I always finished off the, the pitcher. Like the bullpen pitch catcher would start. Then I got Beckett. I'm getting Beckett finishing the game you know you stay away from the starting pitcher meanwhile all the other position players know i got the derby and uh, you know i bet the derby and you always have a derby pool you know you have 20 20 guys we all in throwing 50 or 100 bucks and you throw one out of a hat i even paid i forget who i paid i even paid somebody for the Giacomo because when they saw 50 to one they said oh no chance i'm like i'll buy that from you for 200 because it was the pool 2000 goes to the winner. Uh, it was $100 in, you pick a horse out of the hat. So now we're out on the field and we're playing and I can look in the dugout and Mike Lowell has the day off, Jeff Conine has the day off, and a couple other guys, Don Willis, they're all pointing to me like they're like going in the gate. I'm on the field. So boom, next pitch, ground ball, double play, we get out of the inning. So I literally I'm run into the, the clubhouse. I'm running in the clubhouse. got all my gear on. The horses are on the backside. So they're running up the backside. Tom Durkin's making the call. And all this chaos, it's a big, big, you know, cavalry charge going to the end. And Fleet Alex is the favorite. He goes to the front or he's right there. And then I can hear him say, Giacomo. That's all I heard. Remember Tom Durkin saying, the race caller. And I just started going nuts. And it seemed like maybe a minute was like five to seven minutes. I'm high-fiving every clubhouse guy because here's the deal. I'm telling every single guy with the Marlins, I like this horse, okay? They're all telling me I'm crazy. Where the clubhouse kids are all saying, hey, I'm going to put at least five bucks across. So all the clubhouse kids are giving me high-fives. We're going nuts, this and that. I, I look up. And I just lost track of time. The bat boy comes running in and goes, hey, LaDuca, what are you doing? I'm like, what? 
He goes, the umpire's been waiting for you for a minute. You're on deck. You're ready to roll. So I'm like, what? So I literally run. So I run out to the to the dugout. McKean's like, hey, hey. He always used to call me DeLuca. DeLuca, where you been? He never knew my name, which was great. Jack the best. <laughs> and, and, he's like, and I'm like, uh, uh, don't worry about Jack. So I took off all my gear, and I could see Lowell, and all those guys are like, smiling, laughing, no one wants to say nothing. And I was like, I forget who was pitching. This, I, this, I wish I, w- I was, forget was pitching, but I tapped the catcher and I'm like, I was like, listen, I just won $80,000 on the Derby. Tell the pitcher to throw the ball right down the middle and I am going to ground out. And I did. I grounded out the shortstop so weakly and I ran down the first. I didn't even feel my feet touch the ground. That was the happiest three <laughs> I've ever had in my life. I ran into the dugout. And then when I ran into the dugout, my gear was still in the clubhouse because I took my gear off in the clubhouse. I had to go back in the clubhouse because I wanted to make sure, did he win, who ran second, and all this all this other crazy stuff. I, I, I think, like, I knew I had won, but then I didn't know I had won. And that's when I wrote the article my buddy had the tickets over at Calder. He calls the clubhouse to, to, to alert me to horse one because he's thinking I'm playing and he can hear me in the background and he hung up the phone. He would never call the clubhouse, but he hung up the phone because the clubhouse guy goes, dude, who the heck are you? Like he didn't know who he was, <laughs> but it was my buddy just calling up saying, hey, bro, you just want a shit ton of money. <laughs> that is one of the best sports stories I've ever heard. Oh, it was insane. Insane. I was something I'll never forget. And it's like one of your friends, Mike Smith, wins the race. It's one of the longest shots. And what are the chances? Very rarely do you you're you're getting paid on track more or like say like then you, you got in futures what four months earlier. I mean I thought the horse would be like twenty to one come Derby Day. But he tanked in his other other starts to be fifty to one on Derby Day. Oh my God. Um, listen, I, I, I think one thing I do have to do is, um, you are our horse racing expert at action network. So I do need you to give me like your top three favorites for the Derby before I let you guys go. Um, well, I do like Magnum moon. Um, he's trying to break a curse. No horse has won the Derby that hasn't started a race at, at age two since Apollo did it in 1882. Now, Bodie Meister almost did it. He ran second. Last year, uh, a horse ran third that was there, but he was a distant third. I, I can't remember his name. Bodie Meister just lost all, have another. It's a trend that I think is going to get cracked sooner or later. Magnum Moon's first start was on January 13th. So you're telling me a curse is 14 days? If he starts on December 30th, there's no such thing. I just think he's the real deal. He's four for four. He's won over three different racetracks. He won the Arkansas Derby. I really thought he was very good in Arkansas. He's my number one. Justify for Baffert is number two. He's the same horse. He's trying to break the same curse. The two horses that are probably going to be favorite did not start as two-year-olds, but Bob Baffert would be the great Popovich, the Bill Belichick of horse trainers. He's the best of all time. So that's why you got to include him. And then it would probably be Mendelssohn. He's a wild card horse. 
He's a horse. This is a crazy horse. It's Europe's best chance. They have never, ever won a derby. Since 1986, I think Bold Arrangement ran second. But they have brought horses over from Europe and Kentucky and have tried and tried. Last year, they brought over a horse called Thunder So, who started bucking out of the gate and, and just lost his race. And he ended up winning the Dubai World Cup. So he's a real horse. It's just a hard thing to do. But this horse, Mendelssohn, they paid $3 million for. And he's a brother to Into Mischief. Into Mischief is a sire to one of the horses in the race. Audible is going to be one of the choices, too. So a giant pedigree that they paid $3 million for. That is a definitely a wild card. So those will be my top three horses, but I do love Magnum Moon. I'm going with Mendelssohn. I love royalty. I'm a huge fan. I might even go to England you for the are, I told this. I said this to the other. You, Jason, doesn't he seem like a tea and crumpet kind of guy? Maybe we lost Sobel. Maybe I'm, we lost I'm Sobel. Here. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. I, I thought you guys were still going. I, I've I've got one other guy that told me Mendelssohn. Uh, my my one I don't, derby friend. Hey Deluca. My, my hey Deluca. I don't even think I don't even think Sobel heard your, your the way you ripped me. I think he was yeah, like fading it. out. You yeah, you ran in with out. a I'm hard at, dig and he did not come back for it. Yeah, I was asking you 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 picture Milman as a tea and crumpet guy. He likes the bread. Oh, I I miss that. Yeah, no, nah, yeah, I I can see that. Yeah. Mil- By the way, Sobel, tea, tea and crumpet guy. You know, getting served on. You know silver platters that kind of yeah all that stuff listen fuck both of you also what the <laughs> fuck were you doing that you did like you you just faded out like you weren't even listening are you not engaging in the podcast what happened i'm on a golf course i'm trying to work here i, I got you know I'm, I'm trying to like multitask as i'm doing i i don't know you guys had it covered for a while <laughs> <laughs> i do but i i will can i make up for it chad i, I want to double down on my phil story and give you one more all right Oh, I want to hear make up, one. Yes. Can I make up for my brief absence? Go ahead. Okay. okay. So here, here's an inside the ropes Phil story. And uh, the the Tuesday money game, which was sort of celebrated for a few years, it's, it, it's kind of uh, dissipated a little bit. I think the tours put the kibosh on it. They just don't like the whole attention that it brings towards gambling. It's not uh, whatever. It, it, it was great. It, it probably lasted three or four years. Phil Mickelson was the commissioner of the Tuesday game. And on any given week, you'd have some combination of Phil, Dustin Johnson, Ricky Fowler, Brendan Steele, Keegan Bradley, uh, Jimmy Walker, um, a handful of guys who would sort of make up this foursome. And the stakes uh, that Phil always had were uh, enough to keep you interested, but not enough to make you uncomfortable. And what it was, we all found out, was uh, basically a $2,000 bet with a one-time thousand dollar press and, and so the most you could lose was three grand and for these guys who are playing for a million dollars on any given week um as phil always put it you should want to play for that kind of money on a tuesday because it kind of gets you ready to play for a lot more money later in the week so um you know i know that sounds like maybe a lot of money to some people listening out there if you're just uh playing for a round of golf these guys are obviously uh wheeling and dealing for a whole lot more later that week anyway so uh so in any case they, they would play all the time and you know, the results would always be back and forth. Well, this was two years ago at the Players' Championship. Uh, Colt Nost and Jamie Lovemark, who were not part of this regular game, came up to Phil and said, hey, you know, we, we want to know if you guys want some action on, on Tuesday. And so Phil turns to Brendan Steele and says, hey, we got ourselves a couple of pigeons. Let's tell them the game's a little more than we usually play for. So I think they played for uh, four and two instead of two and one. And they doubled up on these guys. and. 
And so they go out and play, and through 16 holes, Nost and Lovemark are one up on Mickelson and Steele. And as they're walking off the 16th green, Phil turns to Colt Nost's caddy and says, hey, man, I'm really sorry. And the caddy says, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He said, oh, we're going to win these next two holes, and your guy is going to be moping around here the rest of the week like he just lost his dog. And the caddy looks at him and goes, okay, Phil, whatever. Keep talking. Well, they up to 17, the famous island green. Phil stiffs one to about three feet on 17, makes the putt, squares the match, and now they're one up in the press because they press at that point too. They get to 18. And as Phil's telling me the story, uh, four hours after the match had ended, he said, on 18, uh, Nost and Westmark get up there. They both hit it in the trees on the right. Steely hits his in the right. I, of course, just hit mine right down the middle because that's what you're supposed to do. The fairway is down the middle. So I figured I would just hit it in the fairway as Phil talking. And uh, it very much it is uh, Phil sarcasm says, you know, the fairway's right there. I'll hit in the fairway. So uh, then Phil says, you know, Nost is short of the green and Lovemark doesn't get there. And uh, he goes, I- I'm about to hit. And all of a sudden, like a butterfly coming out of the sky, I, I see this ball just dropping so ever so slightly right onto the green, bounces right towards the hole. It stops a foot from the hole. It's my partner, Brendan Steele, who walks out of the woods. I couldn't even see where he was. I think he walked right across the water towards the green and, and, and just tapped in his butt. We win the match. I walk off the green, and I turn to Colt Nose Caddy. I said, told you, and just walked right away. <laughs> that is stone cold balls right there. Isn't it? That, that is, is unreal. I, I wish I had the skill to be able to, like, make that claim and pull that off at the same time. I don't think there's anything I could I could make that bet on other than like correcting someone's grammar. Grammar, <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you know, you know, you know, Mick, you know, Mickelson and I have in common. What's that? We're both we're both Sun Devils. Must must be in the blood over there in Arizona. <laughs> Seriously, oh, there's yeah. nothing else to do. It's so dry. All you can do is gamble. <laughs> Listen, boys, uh, those were amazing, amazing stories. Even though Sobel totally faded out for, for a few minutes there, he came back strong. Um, everybody should go into uh, the buffet page in iTunes. They should rate the podcast. They should review the podcast. They should send in comments. But more importantly, they should send in questions, whether it's for me or Sobel or Laduca, a.k.a. DeLuca, or for Scooch. <laughs> or for anybody else, we will answer your questions on the air. Um, Action Network HQ is the Twitter handle. ActionNetwork.com is the site. The Buffet is the podcast. You can unsubscribe and then resubscribe, and then you can rate it and review it and ask your questions on the iTunes page. Uh, Fellas, that was fantastic. Really well done. 